Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Steven Spielberg has had a long, successful career directing films, including Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws, and many other blockbusters. Yet, he had his directing start in television, including one of the most successful TV movies of all time, Duel. Today, I will be speaking with Steven Awalt about his book, Steven Spielberg and Duel, the making of a film career. The book was published in 2014 by Roman and Littlefield. In the book, Stephen discusses Spielberg's background and how he began work as a television director. He also gives an overview of the original Richard Matheson short story, as well as a detailed description of the film's production. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stephen Awalt. Welcome, Stephen. How are you today? I'm doing well, Joel. Looking forward to talking with you here. Great. Uh, now, the title of your book, Steven Spielberg in Duel, The Making of a Film Career, definitely pretty much describes what you included in your discussion of Spielberg's early success and how it led him to become a blockbuster filmmaker. Before we get into the book, though, what is your background? What led you to decide that you wanted to write about Spielberg in particular? Sure. Uh, it's kind of a convoluted background. I guess uh, Spielberg was was definitely one of the huge influences on me going well back into childhood. My parents took me to see Close Encounters back in 1978. And between that and then Star Wars the summer before, it just opened my very, very young eyes to um, the wonders of cinema. Before that, you know, I was into Walt Disney films like every child of that era, actually every year, I suppose, and um, Jim Henson. But Spielberg and Lucas were the first two filmmakers that I, I came to realize were filmmakers. And um, given the coverage they were given back in their heydays, it was a great experience reading about um, who they were, how they went about creating their films, etc. From there, back in the earliest days of, uh, well, the earlier days of the World Wide Web, I uh, taught myself HTML uh, with the intention to publish a website on a filmmaker Early on, I thought about covering Rankin Bass, the old stop motion animation mm-hmm. uh, company. Big fan of their work. I love stop motion animation. But Stephen, his work is uh, is probably like the centerpiece of my interest in film and having expanded out from there. And there weren't really any good websites on him uh, back in the early 2000s. So I decided to create a, a website to talk about his past films, current films, upcoming films. And uh, so in 2000, I started writing the site, and then in early 2001, I launched it, um, SpielbergFilms.com. I wrote that from 2000 until uh, we closed the site in 2009, and I say we, it was actually more or less a one-man show. Uh, I did have contributing writers occasionally, but most of the time it was me. I wrote over, well over 3,000 articles of varying lengths uh, within that near decade's time. During that time, I I don't even remember how I somehow struck up conversation with Stevens people at Amblin and DreamWorks 
they had given me some information. I would feed them information from what I was seeing out on the wilds of the internet. And in 2006, um, I received a, a letter from Steven Spielberg himself. He had written me to tell me he'd been reading the site for a while. Uh, he was really impressed with the writing and, and the coverage and that he was a big fan of my, my work as a writer. That must have been exciting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> uh, considering how I looked up to him so much as a, a young boy, it really it dropped me to my knees. It was uh, totally out of the blue because I'd never um, approached him personally or, or through his people. And so it was it was a thrill, uh, first and foremost, as a, a writer to to know that someone whose work I appreciated so much had been reading my writing. At the same time, I suppose there was a bit of, I don't know, just knowing that I think there is a self-consciousness to my writing after the fact, but it's, I haven't really changed in that way. So anyway, in later in 2006, I met with Stephen in person for the first time here in Chicago, our Chicago International Film Fest, gave him a Life Achievement Award at that time. And so I was able to um, meet with him and interview him for the old website for the first time. And then after I decided to fold the website, mostly because I had been finishing up a graduate degree in cinema studies at the time, and because um, I, I have always wanted to write in book format rather than online, I pitched a book on Duel to Stephen. He approved it right away, was excited about it, and he actually invited me out to Los Angeles to interview him at uh, Amblin. So that was back in about 2011, I think, maybe. Yeah, I interviewed him in 2011. I think I pitched the book the year before. And so I started doing all the interviews and um, writing it back then. And then finally, we saw publication last March uh, 2014. And did you have a publisher already set when you first started talking to him about it? Or was it a hope that once you had a good idea and you knew you had his his availability, that that would help you sell the book? Um, to be honest, it was totally spec at that point, partially because since it was my first book, I um, wanted to make sure I pulled everything together before I oversold anything. So um, I actually wrote the entire book uh, after doing well over a year's research at various archives and with all the uh, living participants on the film interviews with them. I wrote the book and then I took it around without an agent to sell it uh, on my own. Well, speaking of which, that was going to lead me to my next question. The book contains a great deal of background material on both the original Richard Matheson short story and the film itself. Uh, what kind of sources did you have available to you? Obviously, you mentioned Steven Spielberg himself, but who else did you interview to help present your information? Well, I interviewed Mr. Matheson, which was a thrill because I've always been a fan of his his writing, especially his short stories. Um, so I talked to him. I believe that may be his last interview. Um, to my knowledge, he, he passed away the year after we talked. Um, I talked to, hang on, it's been a while and I'm, I'm actually working on another book project right now. So I want to make sure I get all the names here. Um, I talked to Frank Morris, the, uh, editor of the film, who is an incredible resource. Um, he's, he passed away before the book came out too, unfortunately. Um, and then I talked with, um, well, definitely Billy Goldenberg, the composer, a uh, wonderful, uh, conversationalist, um, Sorry, it's been a while. Um, mostly the remaining crew members, um, because they're um, the the cast is primarily, of course, Dennis Weaver, and he passed away 
oh gosh, I want to say in 2006 or 2009. So I had to rely on archival material for him. Although I did talk to his, his widow, which was really nice. Um, honestly, I can't remember well, everybody's okay, names I right know now. That's part of the problem. Yeah, they're listed, they're listed in the book, right. definitely. The book, with it's just unbelievable. Some of the people you obviously either interviewed directly or were able to interview people who knew them because as you mentioned, I mean, the movie came out in 1971 and most of the people who worked on it were seasoned veterans. You did not, you know, this wasn't a bunch of young people working on this film except for Spielberg himself. Yeah, so yeah. it's not a surprise that many of them are no longer uh, available in any, you know, as far as that kind of material situation. What kind of other sources? I mean, what kind of archival material did you have available? Sure. Um, Stephen opened his archives up at Amblin uh, and that was invaluable. Um, some of the documents I was able to see, uh, for my research, even his, um, contract with, with universal, uh, to shoot the film. Um, some nice letters. Uh, one of my, I cherishing was, uh, Chuck Jones had some, uh, the famous animator from Warner's of course, had some correspondence with Steven about how much he loved duel. Uh, he equated it to, um, you know, having a feel of, um, Roadrunner and the coyote. So, um, that and then one of the the most beautiful documents from any archive that I was able to access. Um, Stephen had um, well, first off, on the production they um, they and I talk about this in the book. They created an illustrated overhead map of um, the area of the highways they were going to shoot on uh, northeast of um, Los Angeles. And um, so what they did was Stephen hung this huge map up along the. Um, walls of the hotel room he was staying at uh, their base for um, production. And every day he would um, mark off um, areas on the map that they were going to shoot. And um, just to, to keep himself physically in the production, looking at this illustrated stretch of road that they had ahead of him to work on every day. Um, so he had this huge document scanned. And unfortunately, because of the uh, limitations of um, the project with the publisher, they weren't able to, include that in the book, even though that was a, a big hope that we had, um, maybe in, in future editions, possibly, um, I would love for, uh, readers and, and film aficionados to be able to see that, um, besides Stephen's archives, I, um, was able to access, uh, Joe McBride. He's a well-known historian. Of course, he did a great book on Stephen back in 97. Uh, he's covered John Ford, Orson Welles, someone he knew personally, um, Joe was a mentor on this project and in general, I think, um, before I got onto the, to the book, because he'd done a lot of work, important work in covering Stephen's career. And, um, Joe had submitted all of his materials from his book on Stephen to, um, the university of Wisconsin in Madison. And they didn't have the materials, um, cataloged yet, but I was able to go through, thanks to their kindness, I was able to go through all the boxes that Joe had shipped over and, um, there's some really good material he'd accumulated, plus some interviews as well, uh, including interviews with people who are deceased now. Um, and then um, the Paley Archive out in um, Beverly Hills, uh, they had an uh, invaluable recording of uh, some of the gentlemen who worked on Duel that I was able to access. And I guess even talking to the um, the individuals that I interviewed, um, Jim Fargo, the the AD. He had some great uh, material on hand. Um, 
Frank Morris, who I mentioned before, the editor, Frank even had his continuity scripts for, um, for his edit with him still. And he had sent me a lot of, um, photographs of, of the material. Wow. That's, it is unbelievable that for a film that was made in 71 for television and therefore nobody really expected it to be anything particularly special, that there's still that much documentary material available for it. Um, yeah, definitely. And at the same time though, um, there were times where it was like, you know, I wish there were more out there. Like um, when dealing with the studio universal itself, um, being like you said, a, a made for TV film and no one knowing that it would do anything. It was a very quick shoot and turnaround as the book talks about. Um, they only have universal that is only has about 25 to 27 um, still photographs or publicity material on file for the show because they didn't have a set photographer out there every day that they were shooting. Um, that's one reason there's a bit of a deficit of, of photographic material in the book. Um, just the nature of the, the production, of course. Um, currently working on another project to follow up on um, Stephen's 1974 feature, The Sugarland Express. Uh, Universal Archives have done a poll for me, and they have, um, I think we're looking at over 500 images for that project. So um, it goes to show you the difference in archive, archival materials from a, a made-for-television film to a feature film. And you mentioned in the book at one point that they were looking at it as there was a decision that had to be made at almost the last minute as to whether they would consider it possibly for a duel for a feature film. Yeah. And that really was discussed, but it would have, the budget would have gone way up. And I suspect those kind of publicity materials would be part of that budget. Oh, sure. If they had, um, like the book talks about, um, uh, Gregory Peck at one point was a name that came up. Um, if they'd got someone like Peck on the show, of course, then, and, and it went into feature, um, production then it would have uh, been really handled uh in the way that it, it deserved to be and and eventually got um you know when it went over internationally let's talk a little bit about spielberg's early tv career since i suspect people depending on their age would not know that he had a pretty successful tv career it wasn't long but he definitely had some definite successes what were some of the things he had done before he before he directed duel Oh, even before Duel to, to carry on your, your thinking there. Um, unfortunately, I think at this age, uh, you know, even, even people who were around back in the seventies, you know, a lot of people thought he sprang from the Godhead out of, uh, from, uh, Jaws in 1975. So, um, that's why I think covering Duel and now working on Sugarland Express, it, it's important to me. So people realize, you know, this, this kid didn't come out of nowhere. And at the same time, if you look at that early work, wow, <laughs> where did, where did he get this eye and, and this intellect in his early twenties? Um, going back to 1969, um, Universal had hired him on a seven year contract after seeing his short film Amblin, which he produced independently. Um, his first show was actually uh, a night gallery, a triptych, um, night gallery being, um, Rod Serling's, uh, Twilight Zone follow-up, so to speak. And, um, so first show that he was doing professionally for Universal, he directed Joan Crawford in Night Gallery, a short film within that um, triptych uh, made-for-television feature. So, wasn't uh, he, it the pilot? Uh, yeah, that's correct. It was the pilot for the, for the series. That's a pretty and, big uh, – that, that's a, <laughs> right there. To, to be your first thing is to do a major pilot for a successful writer 
producer like Rod Serling to be asked to do the part of the pilot. That's pretty uh, un- unbelievable right there. Yeah, that and then having to direct um, Joan Crawford and, and, and Barry Sullivan, um, Tom Bosley, but especially back to Crawford. Um, <laughs> for, for a young kid in his early 20s, that's um, almost unbelievable. And um, just the professionalism he found in himself to um, to take on that challenge. I mean, you know, she was, of course, one of Hollywood's biggest stars. And um, just her reputation alone, I would think you'd be terrified to take on that job, but he, uh, he did it. And, um, it's, it's an admirable piece of work. Um, honestly, um, for being such a great writer, it's not one of Serling's best teleplays, but, um, you know, it works, it works, uh, the material that they had and the, uh, time limitations to put it together. Um, from there he worked on, uh, a numerous series. Um, well, actually he took a year off after working on that. Um, so he could try to get some feature work out there on um, screenplays and, and whatnot. Um, but then he came back uh, and he took on some series work, um, things like uh, Marcus Welby, MD. Um, sorry, I'm blanking right no. now. Uh, it's, uh, it's, the psychiatrist. Um, and then, of course, the one he's probably the stuff that, you know, he's definitely most working with Peter Falk and. Um, Columbo. Columbo, thank you. Yeah, which, which that is was bad ex- because I just read the book. And <laughs> oh, Columbo, <laughs> even to this day, they, I mean, I don't know if anybody, any of the t- television cable stations are showing Columbo's these days, but they should. Cause yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And forget it's on, not just his work, but Columbo was just an unbelievable series. And oh, yeah. Um, a lot of directors and writers got a lot of good experience making Columbo episodes. Yeah, it's out on a DVD, and I think it may be available digitally, too. It's a, a show that, you know, had a, a heck of a run for, for many years, and Stephen was right there early on. Um, technically, it, it, they weren't pilots, per se. They were TV films, and then with the intention to take Columbo to series, but it was an odd type of series. It was a rotational series, so it wasn't on regularly. So they did a series of Columbo mysteries and Stevens was the third one shot um, murder by the book. And it's, uh, I would say as far as TV film type type work, it was um, probably his most accomplished piece of work before duel. And maybe even after duel, I think um, duel and Columbo are his two greatest uh, pieces of work for television. Um, he was able to work from an excellent script by Stephen Bochco, who, <laughs> yeah. went on yeah. to his own fame. Yeah, and other yeah he's done well. You know, one anecdote, um, working as a historian, um, I talked to Bochco on the, the telephone about his uh, strange connection to Duel, which the book talks about. And um, when Mr. Bochco and I were talking um, during the interview, uh, an assistant came into his office and told him that Peter Falk had passed away. So while talking on the phone um, together, he found out that, you know, somebody very important in his early career just passed away. And we were just talking about Falk at this time, of course, because of uh, Stephen and Stephen's connection working on Murder by the Book. So um, I guess that's helped to illustrate something to me as a historian and a writer that um, it really puts an urgency into my work. Um, you know, these these artists from back in the 60s, 70s and so on, even into the 80s now um we're losing a lot of these incredible resources uh from this period so i feel an urgency in my own line of work documenting steven's work and then hopefully other 70s filmmakers to be able to get 
you know, these resources, um, these, these people, their memories, their incredible memories and, and to, um, you know, get them out there on, on the record before it's too late. Well, the good thing is we're finding more and more that uh, artists of in various levels and different types of work are figuring out that colleges and universities and other places will take their archives. And so we're starting more and more materials are appearing in, in film archives where people can actually review them. And, and that probably helps too, but I agree with you. I mean, to interview the, the people who are part of this period. Um, and that's just unbelievable. Stephen Bochco is somebody that I know for a fact that uh, to this day, Hill Street Blues is my favorite television show. And, and ah. that's that. And I, I have never been, there's not a single thing that's changed my mind about that. And uh, mm. many film adaptations, especially, you know, adaptations based on a short story or a novels or, or other kinds of materials, regularly veer away from the source material. What did Spielberg do? I mean, how did he alter Matheson's original short story to make it uh, his own, so to speak? I think a lot of what Stephen did to change um, Matheson's, not only a short story, but the teleplay that Mr. Matheson wrote as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of it comes through visually, which... um, I guess you could say looking at Stephen's entire career um, back in his television work, he was establishing a visual style, um, how he moves the camera, how he frames things. Um, And you could see some of his influences visually in that way, especially like John Ford. I think Stephen shoots a lot like John Ford in um, his moving compositions, his his changing compositions with the camera, moving around and and introducing new information and pushing information out of the frame and so on. Um, so I think a lot of it is we're seeing Stephen exercising that, that unique uh, and yet reverential um, visual style that he's, he's done so well. Um, what was I? I was watching, uh, maybe it was dual actually. I was watching a piece of something just last night and um, just certain, certain ways he um, composes and then recomposes right within a contiguous shot are really thrilling to watch. And I think dual is just an excellent example of, of that kind of um, use of motion in the camera. Uh, something you don't see now with, you know, such staccato shooting and editing in, in modern film. Um, so he was working in a classical style, um, you know, in the era that that was kind of slipping away in Hollywood because those gentlemen were retiring as the studios were falling apart. Um so besides visually, um, there were some concrete things he changed, um, particularly the ending. The ending in the short story of Duel kind of ends um, in a way where it's happenstance. Um, the truck um, more or less kills itself, falls off the cliff itself. And Matheson had changed that within the teleplay, but also um, a minor thing, but I think an in, in, in interesting and visually rich uh, change. Um, you know, we see this tanker says flammable on it throughout the whole film. And um, Stephen didn't want to blow the truck up in big gouts of flame and everything else, you know, stereotypical explosions, Hollywood explosions. Um, he wanted it to be a uh, more poetic ending for the truck, which we do see in the final film. Um, the, I guess these are spoilers, so hopefully. <laughs> oh, by <laughs> now, if you're, if yeah. one assumes, if you haven't seen Duel, 
what are, you know, you wouldn't be paying attention to this anyway. True, true. They've had over 40 years to watch it. Right. Already, so. And it's readily um, available to see. Yeah. So, yep. Especially in a beautiful brand new print um, on Blu-ray. It looks incredible. I wish I'd had uh, that print to look at while I was working on the book because I've noticed things in the Blu-ray edition that I, I didn't see considering all the times I'd watched the film. Um, I think anyway, 40 years, over 40 years is safe with spoiler. Alert, yeah. So. Yeah. So, so we all know um, the uh, man, the main character played by Dennis Weaver uses his automobile to finally best the truck by driving the, the car into it, jumping out and taking the truck over the cliff at the end. And um, in the short story the the truck blows up in flames and everything in this, so we see this beautiful slow motion shot of both automobiles, you know, locked together, tumbling down the cliff's edge and then down to the valley below. And um, as the book talks about, Stephen and um, his producer had a lot of fights with um, both the studio and um, television network. And um, they won out. In this case, the artist won out. Um, Stephen had a really good producer, George Eckstein, who really went up to, to bat for him against the... Um, naysayers at the network and the studio and um yeah it's a, it's a wonderful ending to the film that the book just doesn't have or the short story just doesn't have well that's the thing i mean when you consider the fact that uh the movie the the, the actual film there's such little so little dialogue i mean it, it's it's as close in some parts that it could just be a silent film in some ways it's just unbelievable that I mean, the idea of having to create that out of the short story where I'm sure there's a lot of interior um, monologues and things and just to be able to, to come up with something that becomes so visually exciting, it obviously would have taken a lot of work to change. Oh, yeah. It. Yeah, that and um, they originally, um, Stephen and Eckstein, um, George Eckstein, pushed to have even less dialogue, but the um, network insisted on having more um, they were kind of able to do end runs around that, uh, where they cut out more dialogue than, um, they were told to keep. Um, and in various cuts, like for, for instance, the international cut, they cut out even more. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, I wish they could have pushed it even further. Uh, it's probably too late. No reason to go back and tinker with it anymore. And, you know, that's controversial to do something like that anyway. But well, his buddy doesn't a, mind doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not anymore. He's, uh, yeah, it's he's true he can't anymore, it, so. but yeah, has, yeah. George Lucas can't change Star Wars anymore. That's true. I, well, you know, Stephen actually did that um, for Lucas, um, you know, with, well, with Jules, but then encounters. also Close Encounters, exactly. The 1980 so, uh, version that had more scenes and then the director's cut version, which sort of combined the two in some ways, but still went back and, and it's... Yeah, you're right. He's yeah, and, and there are things, and, and other filmmakers have too, and there are things uh, within the different cuts of Close Encounters. It's like, oh, you know, I guess for personal preferences, you know, there are certain things that you'd wish he'd keep in and, and vice versa. Um, I don't know if anyone else in general would miss the uh, more dialogue being out of Duel, though, um, to, to make it an even more visual you know, exercise almost like a silent film, like they were shooting for. Um, it, I think it could make the film even that much better. And that's saying a lot because it's an excellent film. Um, other than that, I think those, those are the two major things for me, um, the visuals and then him changing the ending and um, the fight over the uh, uh, monologue. Um, however, since it was a made for TV film, he must've had an incredibly tight schedule. How long was the production from literally from when the contracts were, you know, when the decision was made 
through pre-production to final editing, I mean, to it actually appearing on television. I, my memory of reading in the book is that it was very quick. Yeah, my memory of writing the book, <laughs> like I said, it's been a few years, so I, I don't want to say exactly, but it's it was a turnaround within a, a matter of no more than three months. Um, I think Stephen signed his contract in August, and then they were on air um, early November. Um, anyone who wants to verify that can read the book. <laughs> um, but yeah, an incredible, especially when you look at how visual a film it is. Um, I don't know the average shot number or even shot length. In um, TV movies at that time, it would be interesting for someone who um, examines the mechanics of um, film to do that sort of count. But um, just visually, I know, you know, looking at other TV movies from the era, it was a, a unique exercise, very theatrical compared to, you know, limited talking heads as, as television had at that time. Um, so um, it was a lot of shooting. Um, the script is reprinted in the book and you can see a good estimate of um, how many shots they had, but it, it doesn't hew exactly to it. Uh, the film that is doesn't hew to the, to the screenplay uh, teleplay. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the old, uh, the, the general's concept is you're supposed to say one page of a screenplay equals one minute of film time. That's correct. And I don't think that's the case. With <laughs> no, no, no. Cause um, you know, Stephen wasn't a choppy short take, kind of director like a lot of people are nowadays but at the same time um being such a kinetic exercise once he and the editors got to his footage um uh, it, it was really varied so um i i guess my my larger point here is that um it, it was a lot of work in a very short period of time the production itself was 10 days out on location and then they had an overage of uh three days and then once they went back to shoot the um added footage for the international cut. That was another three days, I believe. So to look at this film and realize that it was shot, um, in less than a couple weeks, uh, and then to compare it to a, you know, any kind of theatrical film of that nature, even to this day, the production schedule was insane. And, um, the fact that, you know, Stephen was working with, uh, crew of seasoned veterans was very important. But at the same time, these guys, some of them were older, like the cinematographer, and um, a lot of the people told me the spirit, the youthful spirit and excitement that Stephen brought to the work really helped push him along. That, and they had a great production manager, Wally Worsley. Uh, the book talks about him and his history and his father's history in the industry. Um, a good production manager and, and good uh, assistant directors definitely keep things moving along well. But it, it, despite all that, it's still what an amazing piece of work for such a quick turnaround. Um. Speaking of which, you've mentioned it a couple of times, so I think it's worth bringing up. This was probably one of the first film uh, thing, situations, TV films, or where they actually went to the trouble of filming some extra footage in order to release the film internationally. Um, in reading your descriptions of some of that footage, it's frankly to me, and this is sort of what I'd like to hear what you had to say about it, uh, when did they decide first off that they were going to put in these extra shots and <clears throat> how did they develop the, um, the material that they decided this is what was going to get added? And because those kind of things can sometimes really change the, uh, a film when you start adding material. Yeah. Um, I think, and again, the book talks about it. Apologies for my, my memory now. Um, I think they heard about it. Um, let's see the, the film aired 
November of um, 71. And then I'm pretty sure they heard uh, from the studio that they wanted to um, release it theatrically and they needed to um, expand it to fit within the uh, uh, time for our feature uh, right. to play theatrically. Um, because sure I think heard- even the feature length is barely an hour and a half, right? Yeah, that's something that I don't always get, though, because if you look at feature animation, um, you could get films back then, um, especially, you know, the Disney films, which were the dominant animation, (laughs) almost the only animation at that time. Um, I think you could come in around 70, 72 minutes, but maybe for live action, there was a different rule. But yeah, 90 90 minutes um, is what they expanded the film to. And um, I think they got the call um, spring of 72. And then they went out and shot it pretty quick after Um, uh, they added the four additional scenes that are talked about at length in the book. And as far as the writing goes, um, Richard Matheson told me he wasn't asked back to um, expand upon his teleplay that it was um, Stephen and George Eckstein wrote the additional scenes. Stephen wrote two of them. George Eckstein wrote uh, the other two. So um, the turnaround was pretty quick um, to get those scenes produced um there's some good work in there there's some um i don't know extraneous work um i love the television cut it's it's a lot leaner of course and um i wish they would release that eventually on on some form of home video um but yeah that that's the case is that um the only version available right now is the theatrical version and it's long been that way except for um it has played uh the original television cut has played on um uh the uk on television in the uk which is nice to see that it's out there um but it would be nice if people more people could see um the original tv cut and then the theatrical cut um but you know expanding on it got it into international theaters it it made a really good profit for such a low budget film and it uh helped steven's name expand internationally so i guess in hindsight no one could complain about it it's interesting in these days of blu-ray you would have thought that that would be the logical place to present both versions but yeah 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 i'm not sure why they haven't because um recently they released both uh cuts of 1941 and um of course, Close Encounters, like we talked about before, uh, all three major cuts of that are out on, on video and have been for a while. So I would love to see um, that happen someday with Tool, but not sure why it hasn't yet. Yeah, they didn't do it well, anyway. Yeah, because it's interesting. <laughs> we're talking about they added extra footage to, to make to put the movie into the theater. Mm-hmm. And now, then we went through a period where the opposite happened. They would add scenes to bring it onto television. The yeah. One, the, of course, the greatest example of that was The Godfather, where they've released it in such a format where they added a, bunch, a lot of extra scenes to make it into a miniseries. And, and re-edited the, right. um, yeah, the uh, chronologically. And yeah, then, of I, course, Halloween, where they wanted to, because the movie was actually, Halloween was actually too short for a two-hour time slot, so they added yeah. footage partly to make it longer so that it would play on TV. And uh, length. Jaws as well, there were... Um, maybe about uh, three or four scenes added um, to the television uh, broadcast of, of Jaws back in the, uh, I think it was either late 70s or, or 1980 when that first played on uh, on television and with additional scenes. Those scenes you can see outside of the film on the DVD, and it's better that way not to cut them back in. But um, yeah, that was actually pretty, uh, uh, almost a norm back then when for early television broadcast of films and uh, then VHS. Right. Now, one of the 
bigger points you've made in the book was that Spielberg did not really storyboard the film. I mean, there's a there, I think if memory serves, it just the final scene is the only thing that's storyboarded. And nowadays we think of storyboarding as just being the norm, especially with action-related films or, or for a long time with many of his. But what makes it even more interesting is given the time and money constraints on the film, he was able to come up with such striking visual representations. And what kind of tool of tricks did he or ways did he do do things in order to come up with the visuals that he came up with for the film? Um, a lot of it was just, um, as, as the book talks about, he he um, set numerous cameras down along the highway and um, would get different angles, different lens uh, selections on the um, car and the pursuing truck, and um, then they built the build the sequences within the editing. Um, that and then um, one thing that I, I loved uh, researching and talking about was the the bullet cam. Uh, as far as like very dynamic visuals, um, that was a uh, camera car that was developed for the um, Steve McQueen bullet film from uh, 1968, and they had that camera out or car out there, very very low to the ground, and um, they were able to um, maneuver it between the vehicles and um, you know shoot down right at wheel level. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things you talk about was his ability to uh, to do things visually. He actually has been known as a filmmaker who usually stays pretty close to budget. I mean, he, time and budget, even since he's been able to do much of it on his own. Yeah, nineteen forty one, of course, is the main the, the one exception to that. But hell, yeah, well, Close Encounters as well, and and of course Jaws. But that was you know the elements fighting, not his. Um, his vision expanding it, but that was um, the elements. But yeah, after Jaws, Close Encounters, and then 1941, um, you know, he really reeled it in with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And um, yeah, nowadays he likes to finish early, which he has been able to a lot. Yeah, because there's been periods of time where he's come out with a number of movies in a year. And it's just, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's somebody who's clearly learned how to be lean with the way he makes films. And that's like the old the old filmmakers, you know, that his generation came up revering um back to Ford, Hawks, um, any any director of the, the golden age and, and beyond. Um they, you know a lot of it was because they were contractual and, and the studios would put him on the jobs, multiple jobs a year. But more uh auteur, I know it's a filthy word nowadays, but more auteur uh, oriented directors who did develop their own work. Um back then they shot multiple pictures a year. So um I love that he, he carries that tradition on. So it's Clint Eastwood. He's another one who sometimes will come oh, yeah. multiple films in a very quick period of time. And, yeah. yeah. But, um, speaking of Spielberg and, and the crew, given his age, how was he able to work with a crew that I could ima- only imagine given how as young as he was, and they were all veteran craftsmen and other professionals, how was he able to get them on his side or to work with him? From probably to a person people I've talked to about his early career. Um, I think, you know, there was probably the, the novelty of, Oh my gosh, this, this kid with long hair and, and acne still. Um, early on, especially there was some hesitation and even mockery from what I've heard um, of his working with these older crews. But um, to a person, it sounds like Steven was really able to, to win his crew over through his attitude his uh, energy and um, his excitement for the work they were doing, his uh, uh, putting ideas out there rapidly and people would get motivated by that. 
Um, so on, by the time duel came around, um, they, the crew was behind him very quickly. That would have been necessary. There's no way in the world he could have been as successful if he didn't have a crew. Oh God. Yeah. If they, if they, uh, if they weren't on his side quickly, then, uh, they probably could have never made those 10 days and then, you know, plus the overages. Right. So what happened? I mean, what then we know that the duel was successful, obviously made for TV movie success. Isn't always as you know, you don't, you don't have box office, but it was clear that he came up that he made something really special. So what happened then that, led Duel to start his real career. We say it's the making of a film career. Uh, how did Duel then lead to feature film work? Well, um, as I mentioned before, in 1970, Stephen had taken a year off to try to get some um, screenplays out there and uh, try to get his name out to other studios as a someone who wanted to be a feature director. Um, that didn't go so well, which is why he, came back and asked Sid Scheinberg, you know, he said he'd sing for his supper and he did a lot of series work during 71. Um, during that time though, he did develop a um, screenplay. He was hoping to direct um, called Ace Eli and Rogers to the sky. Um, it was about a um, uh, airplane um, acrobat and uh, it was um, Cliff Robertson was in it and Robertson was really the only big name in it. Anyway, um, Stephen actually met with um, Zanuck and Brown, um, Richard Zanuck and David Brown, who were um, at that time, I don't know if they were still at Fox under Zanuck's father's regime or they were just about out. But um, they said, you know, he wasn't really seasoned enough to direct it. So um, that film kind of crashed and burned. Stephen got a screen credit on it, a story by, but he, he's not fond of it. But that was his first. Um, movement toward features. And then after Duel came out, uh, he started getting a lot of offers for feature work, which would take him out of television. Um, he only directed two other television works after Duel in 1972 and 73. He did um, Something Evil for CBS, and then he did um, Savage or The Savage Report. And then um, he got the green light on uh, the Sugarland Express, a project he first conceived in 1969 and he'd been developing at universal on and off for um, a couple of years. And um, so, yeah, from uh, dual, he um, had a couple of offers that he almost considered and um, wound up um, being able to start out with his own story and his own film in the Sugarland express in uh, which came out in 1974. And then of course uh, the rest is history because then Jones yeah, was yeah. in 75. Yeah, and, and speaking of 77. And, yeah, yeah. And speaking of Zanuck and Brown, that was an important connection. He had already met with him on AC Eli, and they said he wasn't seasoned enough. And then, of course, famously, um, Fox went, you know, Kerbloom, like all the studios at that time, and Zanuck and Brown were um, literally fired by Zanuck's father, Daryl. And um, they put their own shingle out and um, eventually wound up at Universal. They got the Sugarland um, treatment and they said, you know, we'd like to produce this. Well, Stephen was on it. It was his project. So he was able to work with them on Sugarland in 73, came out in 74. And then, of course, he found the uh, galleys for Jaws on their desk. And, um, yeah, they had a nice uh, relationship across a couple of pictures. What aspects of Steven Spielberg and his work? can we see in such an early film as Duel? What, what uh, was 
if somebody watched a Steven Spielberg movie, you know, reasonably recent one, is there anything that he still does that could possibly be pointed back to Duel? That's a great question. I don't think Duel, a film like Duel or Jaws, which he connects in his head thing, you know, they're almost, uh, Jaws is almost a sequel to Duel. I don't think they portray any um, personal quality of him as a person, like so many of his other films do. Um, I think they're more um, mechanical exercises, uh, visually especially. Um, so I would say the looking at some of his, his more recent work or even work um, you know, maybe from Close Encounters on, um, I think if you look back at Duel and um, look at his more recent work or, or work since Duel to today, um, Duel's not a, a personal picture at all. It was an exercise in style for Stephen. Um, you look at Duel, you can look at Jaws, you can look at the Indiana Jones pictures, and I think there is a carry through where they're not personal. There's not a lot of him as a personality or, or his personal concerns that have carried through his, his cinema. But um, I think it's a great example early on that he had a very cinematic vision as opposed to a television, a limited television vision. Um, again, back then, television was a lot of talking heads for reasons of uh, production expediency. And I think with Jules Stevens showed he needed a larger canvas to work uh, visually, how he moves his camera, how he um, uh, composes his shots within the frame, how those images those compositions can change in lieu of uh, the camera's movements. So I think it, it's a good film to show us um, the mechanical side of his work as a director. Uh, above all, um, he really didn't um, start to show his personal side in features, at least um, until probably 1977 and um, close encounters of the third kind, which has a lot of autobiographical elements embedded in the film. Yeah, and that's the thing. You can start to see that where um, we know that Steven Spielberg had a very big suburban touch to his films, and he tried to, to bring suburban life into them, and we saw that with Close Encounters. We saw it with E.T., and you could t I remember reading about both of those films, that whole idea of, of that way of life and some of his other works, even as a producer. The other one I can think of is Poltergeist. Oh, yeah, yeah. They take advantage of this whole concept of, a, of living in the suburbs and what happens when an unusual thing happens to you when you're just a suburban, a suburbanite. That's an excellent point, too. Um, he did, uh, it, it's a conceit in Matheson and definitely conceit in um, Hitchcock, the, um, and, and throughout Spielberg, the um, large forces um, disrupting the lives of normal people. Um, so that that's one carry through as well. Um, right, it's dual. I mean, that's the whole idea. We've got this man who is, you know, he's a typical um, husband with an outside job, and something happens to him for no particular reason that he can think of, and it ends up changing him completely, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It almost kills him. Yep, yep. So, um, and, and interesting enough, um, that concept is something that Stephen, um, again, Matheson has it throughout his work, and then Hitchcock, of course, certainly did. Stephen was able in time to personalize that. Um, we see it in Duel, we see it in Jaws, but then by the time of Close Encounters, there is, again, a lot of uh, personal reflection on his own childhood, his parents, um, his probably his life as an artist, even I mean, Roy Neary is a, uh, a frustrated artist. Um, so 
he takes that and weds it um, with this bigger than life, you know, cinematic spectacle. So yeah, that's an excellent point that um, he's able to take this, this concept of man versus huge odds and, and personalize that in time. So then what did you, after you finished this project and obviously it was part of an over other work too. I mean, you've, as you say, you've been working on Spielberg, you know, for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. What was it about Duel that you think made it? What what aspect of that film was so striking that he ended up getting work out of? You know, was able to move on to to feature films because of mm. it, or at least partly due to it. I think, uh, in a way, we kind of talked about this: um, the visual, the kinetic. Uh, quality visually uh within the editing taking a very simple story and making it um big making it it uh you know work like clockwork um i would say i i you know i can't speak to the people the producers who um it appealed to and why they thought steven was uh, somebody they should back but i i think the film really impressed people on that level from from what i've heard and talked to people about um he was obviously a uh, theatrical filmmaker stuck in a small box of television, just waiting to break out. And I think Duel was uh, the calling card to that. It showed people that there were bigger things ahead of this young man. Probably helped that he was able to produce it in a short period of time, too. I just, oh, yeah. Those yeah. kind of things. <laughs> always, at your average producer, that's the kind of thing that always makes them happy. Is when absolutely, absolutely. Work that quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think it also... Um, in a lot of ways, um, it led to Zanuck and Brown. You know, they looked at, at Duel and, and they were obviously impressed with it. And um, I think it led directly into um, them thinking Stephen could could handle Sugarland, which was shot um, on location in Texas and um, in a lot of work in automobiles. So um, it really dovetailed well into his work on Sugarland. That's something, though, I think bears talking about within the book that I'm working on in Sugarland, I definitely do. But right now, um, a lot of critics, um, even, uh, especially Pauline Kale, she gave Sugarland a, a very strong review, but they seem to focus on, um, the Stevens manipulation visually of, of automobiles, you know, large objects within the frame. And while he is a great director with those kind of mechanics, I think, um, Sugarland, if you look at it, well, through the right eyes, I, I can't see people not seeing it this way, but critics didn't. The humanity within those cars is what's really important in the Sugarland Express. And I think that extends back to Duel. Um, nobody would give a damn about how nice, you know, he shoots the car and the truck if it wasn't for us connecting with David Mann within the car. So uh, unfortunately, you know, he was known as a, a truck and shark director early on in his career and then spaceship director with close encounters. But I think that as usual is such a um, willful misreading of, of one of the things that Spielberg cinema does. And that's takes ordinary people and really um, allows us to connect with them, with their failings, with their fears, with um, them finding their strength as people. So I think that does start with dual and definitely carries forward into Sugarland and beyond. Well, that's it. I mean, Jaws, it's on, you know, if you look at Jaws the right way, it's it's the Roy Scheider character. That it's, Absolutely. It's his, his, it's his change. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind, yeah, there's spacious at the end, but in the end, it's still the story. It's it's the Pinocchio, uh, When You Wish Upon a Star song that, that is so important in Close yeah. Encounters 
that that's what he was trying to show. Not yeah. that the, 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 the theatrics are great, but and the spaceships are wonderful, but it's the fact that this man played by um, uh, my mind, Richard, Richard, Richard Dreyfuss. Dreyfuss. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no it, it, it's just it's his story, and so the everyman or the the the, the normal person in unusual situations. Most good writing, most of the best writing in films, I think, revolve around the idea of, like you say, taking somebody, taking a normal person and putting them into an unusual situation and how do they deal with it? Absolutely. And I think that, um, I've said before, I think Stephen's an incredibly humanistic director. He was saddled early on. I don't know if it was because of his youth or the success of his films, but he was saddled early on with that idea that he was just a director of spectacle. And um, I think in the book, in the dual book, it, um, Sid Sheinberg, you know, the head of Universal uh, in time, he talked about um, Stephen's episode of The Psychiatrist. He did two for that absolutely forgotten television series um, with Roy Finnis um, and uh, – Clue Glogger, I, I believe I'm pronouncing his name right, um, par for the course about a, a man who contracts cancer, dying from it. Um, right there, Stephen was already in his early 20s doing very, um, again, not personal to him yet, but very human dramas. Um, and then by the time of Duel, he was able to wrap these human dramas within a larger you know, hook so to speak. So people ask, you know, why was Spielberg so successful back then? And, and to extend that, why was his friend George Lucas so successful back then? Well, I think they appealed to audiences on two fronts. They weren't just doing straight drama, which is, you know, incredibly appealing, but the um, so-called movie brats that came up with them, you know, a lot of people bemoan the fact that these straight dramas that were so great fell apart and weren't getting the financing after Spielberg and Lucas made these huge films well, I think so many audience members appreciated and connected with Spielberg and Lucas's films because they were giving spectacle, which cinema is definitely a good place for spectacle, but they were also very humanistic directors. And without these people at the centers of their stories, the spectacle would have meant nothing. Well, that's the thing to me, as much as, you know, we'll always remember Lucas as, as, as Star Wars. But I still think one of the, the, the best things, one of the greatest movies I have ever seen in, during my period of time was a movie goer and came out when I was a movie goer was American <laughs> Graffiti. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just it's it, it, you watch it compared to everything else Lucas did. And it's just it's just unbelievable how well that he made that film and, and oh, how yeah. great it is. Well, you look at, um, not to go too far afield with Lucas, but if you look at his three films as a director from feature films as a director in that era, uh, two of which he was directed or, uh, nominated for best director, uh, Oscars, um, THX, which is a very cold science fiction film still at its heart, despite its coldness, it is a story about longing and, um, the need for human connection, uh, between THX and, and his love in that film, uh, American Graffiti is a story, of course, about young people um, pushing into adulthood, some of them feeling trapped in um, their youth, some of them being um, already uh, preemptively nostalgic for the youth and not wanting to go out into the bigger world through fear, wanting to have that last great night with their friends, um, carefree, before they go off to college, the war, etc. And then even Star Wars, you know, which has become this, I, I don't even know how to describe it, it's become... Um, reviled in some circles and i think um after the fact i i think a lot of critics now 
either weren't there or they don't realize when it became a cultural phenomena. It was simply about this young boy wanting something more, uh, not being stuck on the farm. Uh, and that and that relates back to American graffiti and and THX. So again, I think Lucas, um, you know, for all the wonderful special effects and technologies he he um, helped bring into to push cinema forward. I think he at his core, like Spielberg, they're both very humanistic directors, and that I think is why they had those great successes in the seventies and eighties because it wasn't about the spectacle that was just added to you know the core, the heart. Right. So um, you've already said you've got you're you're in the middle of a book on Sugarland Express, and you're hoping mm-hmm. to keep going with later Spielberg works. Is there anything else you're working on that you want to mention, or is this, or is your, or does it look more and more like uh, <laughs> much of your life is going to be devoted to Steven Spielberg? <laughs> no, um, I I hope um, Stephen willing and, and the market willing. Um, I hope to at least cover his films up through 77. Um, it's kind of a personal goal that I, I want. Um, I don't want to say, I hate the word definitive, but I want really solid books out there on these films. Um, his first four feature films, at least. Um, there are plenty of other directors that I um, have long admired that I would like to cover in time. But at the same time, I also have been developing um multiple screenplays and um, I'm working on a novel right now above all. Um, so that's totally outside of the film historian work, but yeah, two separate career paths as I see it um, film history work. And then um, this novel, which in turn, I hope to turn into a screenplay as well. Well, I think it's great because frankly um, people like Spielberg and you're pointing it out um, needs academic level writing because they are great filmmakers and uh, they went through that period of time where because their popularity sort of made them outcasts among certain people. And yet Mm. um, their films stand up the test of time. And when you see them, you can see the filmmaker in some ways that's even better that you, you don't think about the spectacle part anymore. Now you're looking at the filmmaker part. Yeah, that's great. That's a whole nother, um, I could expand this <laughs> episode of your podcast easily by, um, if we were to talk about their, um, reception in academia, um, to this day, in my experience through academia, I, um, went to film school in the early 1990s and then I, um, was in cinema studies and, um, my, uh, graduate work in, um, uh, the mid to late, uh, 2000s and, um, or mid to teen 2000s, I should say, I, I, um, earned my MA in 2011. Um, between those decades in film school, um, you know, they go around asking you who's, what are filmmakers um, or which filmmakers do you admire? And I'd mentioned Spielberg and even the teachers would get, um, you know, venom for me. <laughs> and then that happened in grad school in the two thousands as well. And um, it, it's really discouraging. I think um, it's a subject that I've been studying and, and writing on for a long time, or he is, I should say. And um I think these filmmakers are really devalued in academia. And I think that's unfortunate because um, even if you don't want to um, look at them as, you know, from an auteur uh, standpoint, which again, I know is not fashionable. um, I think um, there's a lot to derive from, from looking back at their work, whether you're doing it through um, uh, reception studies or, um, you know, the um, poetics or mechanics of their filmmaking 
or looking just at what their films did um, historically, how they fit into um, Hollywood history, how they fit into the um, new, uh, you know, the new era Hollywood of the um, late sixties and throughout the seventies. Um, I think people look at them in a very biased, that kind of um, devalues what really happened back in the 1970s um, with the industry failing um, with this um, great small window of time for um, unique voices to come in, young, unique voices to come in and um, make their cinema. And then um, where things went in the eighties, which, you know, Spielberg and Lucas are blamed almost for the, um, I don't know, you know, a lot of the empty cinema in the eighties, but I, I don't think that's a very fair or, um, I suppose you could say scientific way to look at things and as film historians and, um, and people working in academically, I think we need to look at these things scientifically and try to remove as much bias as possible. So I think these are rich. Uh, well, I'll go back to, I'll say Steven is a very rich, um, career and field to, uh, mine as a film historian, um, objectively, I think we need to remove the, um, onus that he has in academia and, and look at this body of films and work, um, in, in ways that haven't been done enough. Um, there's been a nice resurgence or I shouldn't even say resurgence. There's been a nice push, um, to look at his work, um, academically, uh, since about maybe 2007, it's really taken on some new life. And, um, I think there's a lot of work to be done in, in his particular cinema from a, an academic or intellectual standpoint. I really enjoyed this discussion of, of his, uh, of this one movie, but more so as a, a way to look at his career, because it, as was pointed, as we pointed out right from the beginning, uh, this film really helped to be the, the cause, the spark that got him into the, the second more important part of his career and made him the filmmaker that he became mm -hmm. so i really appreciate you talking with me and discussing the book and i'm glad we had a chance to talk about this and hopefully when your next book comes out eventually we'll get a chance to talk about sugarland express and other things going forward so I'd, i would love that joel it was really good talking to you about this okay thank you for your time Stephen. no problem at all my great thanks to Stephen for his time duel definitely still stands up as a great film this is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.